We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 150 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. We have a special edition for you on this occasion. I've got with me Meredith Doig, President of the Rationalist Society of Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Meredith. Thank you very much. Delightful to be here. Great. So, dear listener, um, Meredith, as I just mentioned, president of the Rational Society, so we'll have a chat to her about the Rational Society, what they're up to, and her involvement and her background, and then we'll launch into all sorts of the usual topics of what's happening with religious freedom and religious privilege in Australia and all the normal issues and and get Meredith's take on it. So, Meredith, um, I remember I spoke to you Oh, a week or so ago in the lead up to this and I and I asked whether you listened to the podcast and you admitted that you you listened to most of it you don't necessarily get to the end because it drags on a bit and that's that's fair enough but if <laughs> in my defense Meredith if I was to list your full CV of all the things you've been doing I'd probably go over time just on that issue alone so um dear listener Meredith Doig, I'm just going to read from the, uh, the page that's on the Rationalist Society website. Uh, so RSA President Dr Meredith Doig is a professional company director and governance consultant. Her consulting work focuses on governance and executive team effectiveness, board reviews, potential assessment, executive coaching. She is a facilitator of the company director's course for the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a moderator with the Cranlana program on ethics and the good society. Her career spans 10 years in education and research, three years overseas, and 15 years as a corporate executive in manufacturing with Ford Australia, mining with Rio Tinto, and banking with ANZ, followed by 10 years or so in consulting. Her education followed the classical liberal tradition with studies in pure mathematics, linguistics, and classical civilization. She served on the Federal Government's Higher Education Council for four years and has been a member of numerous university advisory committees. Um, Apart from her professional career, Meredith has been a long-time community activist, lobbying on topics ranging from tax and industry development to social equity and corporate governance, has completed a PhD on the nature of organisational sustainability, and if that wasn't enough... For over 40 years, she's been a passionate motorcyclist, advising the federal government on motorcycle safety and becoming the first chief motorcycle instructor in Australia. She still rides a BMW 650GS and has completed five overseas motorcycle trips. Meredith, what do you do in your spare time? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, look, I'm slowing down these days. (laughs) Right. Good on you for being so involved in so many things. So, ah, look, you've only got one life. You may as well get involved. Yeah, you're packing it in. That's for sure. So, um, so Meredith, let's turn our attention to uh, the Rationalist Society, and you're mm. the president of that. What what do the Rationalists do, and what are their aims, and you know, mm. why should we join if we're thinking about it? So, people often ask me. Um, uh, when I say I'm president of the Rational Society and they say, oh, what's that? I haven't heard about that. And I say, well, we're in favour of science and evidence as opposed to superstition and bigotry. Mm-hmm. Most people say, that sounds good. <laughs> and it does. I mean, it sounds very sensible. The Rationalists have been around since 1906, believe it or not. There was a, or there still is, a rationalist association in in London, in England, and uh, back in 1906, there were there was a group of um, Melbourne University students at Ormond College who used to import the little uh, pamphlets that the Rationalist Association from the UK, the Rationalist Press Association, I think it was called. Um, they used to import those little booklets and hand them out. 
And those little booklets published by the Rationalist Press Association, they were sort of on a variety of topics which were really defending the legacy of the Enlightenment, which in 1906 was not that far in the past. And uh, so those students uh, got together in Ormond College, uh, one of the residential colleges at Melbourne University in 1906. And that was the beginning of the Rationalist Association in Australia, Rationalist Society. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, they, they continue, well, I, I wasn't there, but um, I understand that they continued meeting regularly. Um, and in the mid-1920s, they, they um, incorporated, they became legal. So around about 1926, they formed the Rationalist Society, mm-hmm. a legal body. And it's been going ever since then. And I must say, um, there, there is a, um, a draft history of the Rationalist Society, which I've read through, and soon one of these days I've got to get around to finalising it and publishing it. But it's had quite a colourful history um, it's it's really had some interesting people who were variously secretaries or on the board or whatever. We have had one guy who was um, uh, rather strange in his behaviour, and it turns out he was suffering from syphilis, and that's why he was that'll, strange. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it, look, honestly. Um, it's one of Australia's venerable institutions. It's been around for a long, long time. And um, Are you able to say how many members at the moment? How many members? Mm. No, that's a closely guarded secret, but okay. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Right. Yep. Throughout, throughout Australia. Yep. We always do with more. Uh, but, I, you know, it seems to me that people these days don't tend to join things as much as they used to. Um, So for every paid-up member that we've got, I'd suggest we have, you know, 10, 20 fellow travellers who agree with our and and your uh, um, ideas and philosophy, but they just, they don't get around to... You know. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, political parties are finding exactly the same thing, yeah. that you yeah. know, the people who support a political party but very few members compared to what it would have been 30, 40, 50 years ago when people joined groups and, and a- actually went to meetings. People have busy lives, I understand that, and, and I'm eternally grateful to the people who do actually fork out once a year um, for their membership and and provide us that really solid um, support using the proceeds of which we can we can do what we have to do, which mm. other things is, you know, running legal cases and um, making publications and uh, so on. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get on to the legal case in, in a moment, but uh, it seems to me, because I obviously subscribe to your newsletter and, and keep abreast of what you're up to, and mm-hmm. maybe it's just my particular bias or antenna that's operating, but you're spending a lot of time battling religious elements in this country at the moment on all sorts of battlefields, whether it's, you know, assisted dying or abortion law or just freedom of speech issues and the Ruddock Inquiry and whatever. Uh, has the rationalists always been... Do you, do you feel that there's an increased focus on religion because it's in the news more and is active? In the past, was it more of a sceptical society dealing with snake oil salesmen and flat earthers or, you know, that sort of thing? Um, Is there a change at all or has it always had a a strong need to take on religious elements? No, we've always had both arms to our activism. Mm -hmm. That is both... Um, well, I would say not anti-religious so much as pro-secular. Yep. I mean, my personal philosophy, I wouldn't say that this is the rationalist's um, 
public philosophy, but my personal philosophy is I don't really care what people believe in the privacy of their own minds as long as they don't try to impose it on others. And particularly if they don't try to impose it on others using the organs of the state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, religion, um, education and schooling, for example. But we, I, I would say that, so I would say we're not, we're not so much anti-religion, mm. although I don't really understand why people choose to believe in supernatural things, but anyway, that's up to them. Um, so we're not so much anti-religion as pro-secular, and, you know, the difference is the pro-secular means um, we're in favour of a separation between church and state. So religion has its place, but... It's more or less in the private realm um, and in particular the government of the day should not use taxpayers' money um, nor allow uh, public institutions to be used to further any particular uh, religious um, ideas or beliefs. I'm I'm with you on that score. do you feel that we're losing the battle at the moment? Does it? Do you... No, look, we're not losing the battle. We're, these things wax and wane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the rationalists uh, have have been fighting um, religion uh, since the nineteen twenties, and sometimes we 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 win, yep. and uh, and sometimes we don't. I mean, we we have at the moment, and well, not just at the moment, under John Howard and then in particular under Tony Abbott, I think we had a a particularly um, strongly religious element. I mean, and the interesting thing is that it used to be, when when I was growing up, (laughs) it used to be that the Labor Party was dominated by the Irish Catholics and the Liberal Party was dominated by the English Anglicans. But since um, John Howard and particularly Tony Abbott, there's more Catholics who've gone into the Liberal Party. Uh, But the the Catholic element has always been very strong in the Labor Party. So unfortunately... um, people like us and people who believe strongly in a genuinely secular country um, can't look to either side of politics as our saviours. Yeah. When it comes to Australian culture and social movements and things, I often feel that all we need to do is look to America and what are they doing and we'll soon be doing it not long afterwards. It might take us five or ten years, but we sort of tend to follow a lot of their trends. And certainly in that country there's been the rise of a very strong political movement of evangelicals and sort of the Tea Party type thing. And, And it seems to me that the conservative religious elements in Australia uh, are taking that template and now bringing that to play here in Australia and that all of those really awful things that are happening over there are just all starting to creep in here that never Mm. did before. So... Well, you'd think, or maybe that's just because you're exposed to them now. It could be. It could be just... You mean my bias might be sort of showing that I'm just more attuned to it than than was the case before? Presentism bias. Um, Look, I I think uh, what has what happens in America has affected what happens in Australia. Well, since the Second World War, anyway. Mm. For example, I, I think there's definitely a a Tea Party-type takeover of the Liberal Party happening. And we're seeing that in Victoria at the moment where uh, certain elements there have decided to sign up religious groups and in particular Mormons. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned before, people are not joining organisations anymore. So political parties don't have nearly the number of members that they had 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you only need to rustle up five or 600 people and you can make real change at a district or, or whatever level 
of of a big political party like the Liberal Party. So it's called branch stacking. Yeah, and you know, take for example the, the Mormons. They're quite obedient if their leader says, I want you to go to this branch meeting, I want you to sign up and I want you to vote the way I'm going to tell you to vote and they'll do it. And and that's that's happening in the Liberal Party in Victoria and it's also not so much with Mormons in Western Australia but certainly with conservative religious groups over there. And, and the, the Liberal Party is being taken over by religious groups, which I don't think... You know, it probably happens in waves, but I think this is a wave that's a pretty strong one at the moment that the Liberals are having to 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 come up against. So uh, mm. that's that's my impression of the current state of play. Yes, but just remember, you know, the Anglicans were very dominant in the Liberal Party thirty years ago, mm-hmm. and the Catholic Church has always been very influential through its. Um, ownership, so to speak, of uh, significant unions in the Labor Party. That's true. Shop workers union, yes, in particular. Shopkeepers, yep, yep. That's true. Mm. So I don't don't think this is a unique phenomenon. It's new. I mean, Mormons, yes, haven't heard of Mormons um, being recruited into either party in uh, in previous times, so be interesting to see whether that's uh, appealing to voters or not. I mean, <laughs> people who Mormons are people who believe that Jesus um, arrived in America in the eighteen hundreds. Um, so oh, they've so, got some crazy ideas in so the Mormons. It's very strange yeah. ideas. Yeah, just I'll, I'll, I've got a link in the show notes to an article here from the Age, which says uh, an Age investigation has confirmed with senior church sources that at least ten of the seventy-eight people elected to the Liberals' administrative bodies mm-hmm. at the party's April State Council are Mormons. So that's thirteen percent of key positions when you consider that the percentage of Mormons population-wise is 0.3%. So, you know, they're looking at it and thinking, well, we can get things, you know, society organised our way. All we need to do is just take over a political party. <laughs> that's, that's what they're about to do. They've got to get votes, though. Well, well, what they'll do is they'll put Mormons in as candidates and they'll just pick up rusted-on Liberal voters. Um People are tribal. They'll just go, Liberals are my tribe. I vote for Liberals. That's my tribe. And and without paying a lot of attention to it. You Could know, be. That's, that's my fear anyway. So uh, I, th- I think that's the game plan. Now, change of topic, Meredith, uh, mm. the chaplaincy program. So um, Luke Beck is a lawyer and he came out with an article stating that it would might be well. He's saying there's a good chance of challenging the chaplaincy program due to state anti-discrimination laws. So, by schools insisting on a religious chaplain, that was a breach of the various state laws, and that the program could be challenged on that basis. And do you want to tell the story of you read the article and what happened next? Mm, sure. So I did read the article, and uh, my interest was. So I um, thought, oh, I think I'd better go and meet this Luke Beck. Mm. So together with a guy called Les Allen from the Victorian Humanists, we went out and uh, met with Luke because I I like to make sure that people aren't crazies before I throw my hat hat in with them. And Luke is no crazy. He knows what he's talking about. In fact, he's very, very good at uh, what he's talking about, which his his, um, expertise, his PhD, is on Section 116 of the Constitution, which is the secular clause of the Australian Constitution. So he's really deeply um, knowledgeable about this area. Mm -hmm. And um, he was really 
enthusiastic about the idea of working with us to uh, mount a case or to, to bring a case uh, to VCAT, the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, um, challenging the, the chaplaincy program as it is in Victoria. As you probably know, even though it's funded at a federal level, that funding is um, channeled through the states and the states um, run the program on behalf of the Commonwealth. So the way that it happens, and it, it may be slightly different in different states, but I think this is probably um, similar uh, to the way that it happens in Victoria, which is that the Victorian Education Department um, more or less outsources the recruiting and managing of chaplains for schools. It outsources that work to a number of religious organisations, mostly religious organisations. Mm. Um, down here in Victoria, the, the main one is called Access Ministries, but in Queensland, you might, might be more uh, familiar with um, Scripture Union. Yep. And in, in New South Wales, Gen R8. So there's a number of these organisations. Anyway, um, Access Ministries uh, advertise for people to apply to become uh, a chaplain under the National Chaplaincy Program. And on their website, they explicitly say that the applicant has to be a committed Christian. Mm. Now, that's actually unlawful according to the Victorian Equal Opportunity Act. Mm -hmm. Now, Access Ministries might try to argue that they have an exemption because they're a religious organisation. Yep. But our argument would be, well, the chaplains aren't allowed to do religious stuff. You know, they're not allowed to proselytise. And the context within which they do their work is often a public school, which is a non-religious environment. So we don't think that that applies. We don't think that religious exemption applies. But, you know, we'll have to argue that case. Yeah. But even if, even if um, we don't win there, we also have an argument against the Victorian Education Department. The Victorian Education Department, who um, outsources this work to the various religious organisations, on their website, they have a, um, a section on the chaplaincy program and under that section, they've got um, a list of Q&As. Mm -hmm. And the questions is, um, why does the education department not employ chaplains directly? And the answer is it's against the Equal Opportunity Act. It's unlawful. Okay, right. So, so they admit they couldn't do that. They, they couldn't discriminate that way themselves. Our argument against them is you can't outsource an unlawful act. Right. Yep. So... We'll see how that goes. We've, in order to go to VCAT, you have to have a plaintiff, a, a person who claims that they have been discriminated against or um, uh, disadvantaged in some way. And we have such a person uh, and we're just waiting for the right time for that person to say, yep, let's go and then we'll submit the uh, case to VCAT. It'll probably take a, a couple of months to actually work through to um, a hearing. So this is a sort of medium term rather than a short term. Right. Uh, 
nothing, so watch this space. Okay, and was and somebody like Luke Beck is going to run the case, or who? Yeah, who right. The advantage of going to VCAT is that you don't need to be uh, represented by a lawyer, and Luke has very kindly agreed to present the case for us, and that's that's perfectly acceptable within VCAT. Right. Yep. Excellent. So. Good luck on that one, because um, I'd flagged that I was worried that it, because it's not schools who are employing these chaplains, that it's the it's one step removed. It's you know in our case in Queensland, Scripture Union, but uh, you, you feel that you can still run the argument that that schools and the education department can't um, outsource a discrimination practice like that. That they're still. If they, if they know about it, they're still bound by it, is what you're kind of saying at one level. And and then you're saying even Scripture Union or Generate or or the other group, uh, if they have an ability to discriminate, it, it must be where the job criteria calls for it and uh, where the job criteria specifically says you can't proselytise, then they can't... Um, insist on a religious person? There's nothing in the job of a chaplain mm. that necessitates uh, religiosity. Yeah. I suppose you could run that argument about, you know, private religious schools employing any teacher, really. I mean, a maths teacher who never teaches a religious class, I mean, you could run the same argument, couldn't you? But they seem to, they seem to get away with it. Yes, they do. Um, look, the, on the face of it, the the National Schools Chaplaincy Program is overtly discriminatory, mm. and various um, permutations of uh, liberal governments have found ways to sort of sneak around and keep it going and. Uh, make sure that there's only religious people who benefit from the these jobs. But it's overtly discriminatory. And sooner or later, somebody somewhere has got to say, hang on a sec, <laughs> enough is enough. Mm. You've got to stop this discrimination. Yep, yep. Good, good on you for, for running it, Meredith. I, I think these sorts of legal challenges are going to become more and more important because, again, working on my theory that we tend to follow the American model, certainly the conservative religious elements in the USA, um, uh, they've got um, various groups. The, the main one there is they've got a, a group called... So this is a, a pro-religious group who seek to uh, run cases... Um, to get laws uh, to suggest or to say that religious groups, for example, can discriminate in their hiring of people and or in their serving of, you know, cakes and things like that. So that particular legal group funded by conservative, mostly Christian groups, they're quaintly named Alliance Defending Freedom is what they're called. And so that's a sort of a, a, a legal group who'll work pro bono for people uh, like uh, that, that the, the cake case that everyone's familiar with. And in America, they've got the sort of the opposite of that is the Freedom From Religion Foundation who, who often then provide the counter-argument to the Alliance Defending Freedom. So my concern in Australia, Meredith, is that the Australian Christian lobby is gearing up and is creating its own version of Alliance Defending Freedom and we need to start thinking about gearing up and providing our own version of Freedom From Religion Foundation. So, got any thoughts on that? Do you think I'm on the right track that that's where, this, where we're heading? Somebody tells me you're a lawyer, Trevor. I was, yes. I, I, I reti oh, what, retired from I practice 18... Are you putting your hand up? Um, I just want to motivate somebody to do it. <laughs> I've, I've got my hands full producing this podcast every week, Meredith. But uh, dear, dear listener, 
if you think that, you know, this is fanciful, what I'm suggesting, then I'm just going to play a few clips here. And um, the ACL, as we know, Lyle Shelton has resigned from being in charge. And he's going to run for the Senate in Queensland, I believe. So we've got that to look forward to. But I came across this interview with Martin Isles, who is the the new, um, I don't know if he's called president of the ACL or spokesperson. Anyway, replacing Lyle Shelton. And I'll just play a couple of uh, snippets here. So this is the first one where uh, Martin Isles is, is introduced to people. So I'll just play this now. Uh, Martin Isles, who joins me now, uh, is a graduate of our Lachlan Macquarie Institute. With his legal training, uh, Martin is widely respected for his expertise on religious freedom and he has served with uh, great distinction before a number of parliamentary committees representing ACL. More recently, he's pioneered the Human Rights Law Alliance, which was a legal initiative, or is a legal initiative of ACL, and uh, under his leadership, that has provided uh, support to dozens of Christians who have found themselves uh, either uh, discriminated against in their employment or even litigated against for simply following their Christian convictions. Human Rights Law Alliance. Do you like that one, Meredith? It's, it's a, um, a, a clever use of uh, terminology. Yes. So, you know, that was his job in the ACL before he got promoted to Lyle's job, was mm. gearing up and providing that and... I've got a bit of his speech afterwards that, you know, he goes on about it as well, saying that's the direction we're heading. So next time you're meeting with Luke and people like him, can you try and whisper in their ears and say, guys, help? I'm absolutely happy to do that. But Mm. if anybody uh, out there listening to this podcast happens either to be a lawyer and interested in this idea Mm. or knows of other lawyers who might be interested... Um, perhaps they could just drop you a, a note yes. and I'm, I'm happy to organise getting in touch with people and seeing if we can get something going. Yeah, because there's some great guys out there like Dean Stretton wrote that marvellous submission to the Ruddock Inquiry. So, yep. guys, um, no commitment at this stage, just an interest in talking <laughs> and... Um, at least if we can know some names and gather some people together, um, the secular movement is going to need help. So it would be nice to have a group of like-minded lawyers who we could bounce ideas off and Absolutely. discuss these things. So, um, so yes, the Iron Fist Velvet Glove website, um, contact me via that. There'll be a contact link there and... and um, yeah, you're desperately going to be needed in the years ahead, that's for sure. Mm. And look, you know, I, I, we're not saying that this would be very onerous, but mm. I think just putting people in touch with one another and making sure that there is a, a meeting of minds um, and as and when issues come up, like the one with uh, the, the chaplaincy program, there will be others in the future. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of lawyers, not all lawyers are (laughs) venal. A lot of lawyers go into the law because they're interested in, um, the foundations of democracy and how it works well, uh, how it should work better. And I'm sure there are lots of lawyers out there whose, um, uh, philosophy is aligned with a, a, a secular ideal. Mm. That is, you know, we're not necessarily trying to um, uh, close down religion, but we are wanting to maintain a country which in which the government, the state, um, does not um, promote any particular religion. Mm. The other thing is you'll get to meet some really good people, have some fun times, and look, it's not every case that gets to the High Court, and these are the sorts of issues that could eventually end up there. So, you know, if, if you do want to be in the High Court at some stage, arguing a case or being involved in one, then this is one of those opportunities because it's not that easy to get a case to the High Court. So, 
Um, so there's all these other sort of reasons as well. So get in touch, guys, and ladies, of course. Now, um, on the topic of cooperation, Meredith, mm. there's a bunch of organisations that seem to have a lot of similarities. So we've got the Rationalists, we've got the National Secular Lobby, we've got the Atheist Foundation, the Humanists, Theorists, Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools, all, all sorts of groups like this. What, if any, cooperation talk amongst yourselves? What, what happens at presidential levels with these groups? Do you have anything to do with each other? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I've been president of the Rationalist Society since 2011. And there, there was a, and I, I was part of a, a movement some years ago to try to build a, um, uh, an overarching national coalition mm -hmm. of all these groups. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of our um, a lot of our philosophies overlap and our values overlap. Unfortunately, that sort of fell in a bit of a heap. And it fell in a heap because um, it, because we started uh, worrying about internal matters rather than so looking inward rather than looking outward to getting stuff done. And I've thought long and hard about, and, and lots of people have said to me in the past, you know, why don't you, why don't you collectively um, get together and, and uh, coalesce and have a bigger, stronger national group? Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I think there's pros and cons about doing that. One of the um, things that I've learned over the years, and I've been around. Um, volunteer organisations a lot for many decades um, and anybody who has been in or part of a volunteer organisation will know that really most of the work gets done by about four or five people. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, I think it's just, you know, that's sort of naturally the way things fall out. So if you brought together these various groups around Australia, I suspect that there'd still be about four or five people who'd do all the work. Mm. But now you've got a multiplicity of groups, all with their own constituencies and slightly different um, uh, slightly different ways of thinking. Sure, priorities, yep. Priorities, but each of them have their four or five people. So you've got multi multiplicity of four or five people. So in a way, the advantage is we have more people who are engaged in the work. Hmm. The, the disadvantage is that sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. But the way to get around that is just to build personal, good, open relationships um, between those groups of four and five people. And I must say that over the last few years, I've reached out and, and developed really good relationships with people in the atheist community and, and the humanists and the secularists and... Um, Brian Morris's um, National Secular uh, lobby. lobby, National Secular Lobby, and uh, various people in the humanist groups, and um, Max and Meg Wallace uh, in in the Rationalist Association in New South Wales. So, yeah. I think as long as we keep the lines of communication open, and then we collaborate. Um, as and when required. So, so does, for example, do the humanists or Queensland Parents for Secular State School, for example, contact you and say, we've got a little push going on this issue or a little program on this. Um, could you please tell your members? Or we're, we're doing a campaign to write to members of parliament. Well, for example, on the 
In New South Wales, they've just had the vote in the upper house on the abortion clinic exclusion zones, and there's mm-hmm. about to be a vote in the lower house. And so one of these groups, for example, might want to run a campaign where everybody contacts their local member to let them know their thoughts on, on that issue. Is it easy for somebody to to contact all of those groups and say, please tell your members this is what we're doing and pass the message on? Does, does that happen? Well, we, we do it and we would welcome other groups asking us for yeah. our support. It's, it's really a matter of people just picking up the phone and maintaining that relationship. Yes. And, and asking. I mean, we, we have supported the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools. They're, they're mm-hmm. a fantastic group. And, of course, Furitz down here yep. did an outstanding job um, a few years ago in particular with their campaign against um, special religious instruction mm-hmm. in Victorian schools. So, yeah, look, we're happy to, to support other groups and, you know, we, we would ask other groups to support us in campaigns that we're running. Yep, yep. So, um, so, you know, so when I think of cooperation cooperation between the groups, I just think of it more, at least initially, as being, hey, guys, we're doing this. If, if, this agree, if, if you agree with this principle, then please tell your members and get them to support it as well. At, at that sort of basic level, without too much more than that, would still be achieving something because... Ultimately, that's what the religious groups are tending to do in their areas. I mean, they've got their different beliefs, but they come together on the freedom of religion issue, which should be called special religious privilege issue. Well, uh, well, can I just interrupt hmm. there? Because I think we, we have to be careful not to generalise um, over all religionists. I mean, you know, I interestingly, religion was completely irrelevant to my life until I joined the rationalists. Mm. And I actually had to learn something about it. Um, and one of the things that I've learned is that within various churches, they fight like cats and dogs. They they are not a united front at all. Um, the, the There are people in some churches that I know who cannot stand uh, other parts of the church of, of, of their own church the, the, they are there are um, sections within various churches but there are also animosities across different churches yep so got to be a little bit careful about generalizing too much and also you know the freedom for religion what, what's it called freedom for religion Freedom for faith, freedom for faith. Yes. That group, they represent a minority of uh, the Christian church. They do not represent the majority. And, in fact, one of the things, um, when we were campaigning with um, Ferris against special religious instruction, we um, took a delegation to see the the Victorian Department um, uh, Minister for Education and I took with me, apart from Furis and myself and um, a guy from the Humanists, we took three very senior uh, religious leaders mm-hmm. and they were happy to come with us to lobby the education minister against SRI because they didn't like what access ministries were doing with SRI because Access Ministries was clearly um, proselytising and uh, it was a very um, extreme form of religiosity. And the people that I took with me to see the Education Minister, um, they represented the mainstream uh, religionists. A lot of religionists do not like uh, the ACLs of the world. Yeah, not, not in their name. That's true. I had some contact, I think, with the lady running the program for the Uniting Church in Queensland, and she said that really they were more or less pulling out of it because 
they, they obeyed the rule that you're not allowed to cross the ties and it cost them money and it was using up valuable resources for not much benefit. So they, um, because they were playing by the rules, didn't want to be involved in it. So you're right there that the more traditional churches um, don't. But, you know, still on when it comes to the battle... You know, when it comes to say the uh, the Ruddock inquiry, a lot of them are singing from the same song sheet on that one, at least. They're... Well, are they? I mean, I don't know whether you've read mm. the sixteen thousand mm. um, submissions, most of which would be just um, pro forma, but yep. I, I think you'll find that there will be some very thoughtful submissions from the likes of the Uniting Church, mm. uh, who do not take the ACL or the freedom for faith uh, extremist line. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, they're locked in mortal combat with the extremists within their own ranks or within their own um, religion. Yes. So our argument to the education minister was don't let the um, – the extremist tail wag the mainstream dog. Well, where do you think the Catholics sit in this argument? Depends. Depends. I mean, I think, I don't know about you, but my um, I, I know a number of lay Catholics and they tell me that lay Catholics don't listen to the hierarchy anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the leadership of the Catholic Church that's the problem. Not not most lay Catholics. Most lay Catholics are, um, you know, just ordinary people. They want to get on with their lives. They, it's, a, it's a private thing for them. They don't want to impose their views on others. But it's the, um, the leadership that's the real problem. Mm. I don't know. Some of the noises I just feel I hear from our political leaders who are religious, they seem to me to be um, in, in favour of this argument that Christians are persecuted and that we've got to protect their religious freedom. It just, you know, it's hard for me to give examples off the top of my head. But uh, anyway, I guess you're, I probably agree with you that the average sure layperson... Lay they, they may think that it um, get them a bit of airtime, mm. but uh, I, I think if you have a look at the outcome of the same-sex marriage um, postal survey, what that showed was that most Australians are pretty sensible. Remind me again of the percentage, 63 or something, was that right? Does that, does that sound right? It's about two thirds. Yeah. Gee, that's still a lot who are against it. But yeah, yes. You, you, <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I was worried that it'd be worse. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I, look, I'm, 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 you're, you're more positive than me, hasten, so that's good. Hasten to say that. Um, I'm not complacent at all. There is a heap of work to do and I think you're right to be worried about the um, uh, the infiltration into leadership positions in um, politics and the law and so on by extremists who... And if somebody out there, if you've got a, an investigative journalist listening amongst your um, listeners who would want to do a bit of an investigation, where do they get these ideas from? I'm sure it's from America somewhere, but I just don't have the evidence. So if somebody would like to look that up, I think that would be really interesting. It's the whole dominionist theory. Yes. So where you put people in positions of power in in law, in politics, in the media. Seven um, months. Yes. And that's what they're... That's what they're they're doing. So they're just following that dominionist template, it seems to me. But um, well, still on the same sort of idea, then um, Meredith. The other thing is is uh, the Ruddock inquiry. 
Did yes. you get a fair hearing compared to say uh, the uh, the the opposition voice to that? You know, uh, we, we've seen things in Eternity magazine and, and other articles where it seemed like uh, the religious elements got special meetings, uh, private meetings, or whatever with the Ruddock Inquiry that, and that the Ruddock Inquiry went to a. a a freedom for faith sort of convention or whatever, so but never went to a rationalist meeting, it seems. So do you think that they got any more special access than than the secular voice got? Uh, I whenever there are there is a review of religious freedom in Australia and there have been multiple reviews about every five years they have a review into mm. religious freedom in Australia. This is just one of them. Um, but you asked whether I thought we had a, a fair hearing, and the answer to that is yes. We met um, ourselves without other people present and had an hour and a quarter with um, Ruddick and three of the others. There was only one who was overseas. Um, and... Apart from a, a, a small hiccup at the beginning where they took issue with one word in our submission, um, I think they were pretty open to what we were saying. But then we were not – I. if the rationalist society is not rational, <laughs> yep. then what are we? So our I, – I mean uh, – Personally, I think our submission uh, was quite rational and um, solid, substantive. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit to uh, to go through. But, no, I, I felt they gave us a fair hearing. Um, from memory, uh, Ruddick began by saying that he would be um, uh, challenging some of the things that we say, that, that we wrote, but that was... Um, uh, his role as the the chair, and that's fine. Uh -huh. I mean, if I was sitting in his um, chair, I would be challenging people uh, as well. But was it um, was it unreasonable, uh, or were things that they said questions that they asked unreasonable? No, I don't think they were. Right. Okay. Well. You're filling me with some confidence, Meredith. Thank you for that. But, but but this is but this is just you know one personal experience. Don't necessarily generalise that to everybody. I mean, what what they come up with, um, I think, is not necessarily going to be a matter of what they heard in the various um, interviews that they had or mm. the hearings that they had, nor necessarily um, the uh, submissions that they got because it's a political um, matter. Yeah. And, you know, they will push as far as they deem it uh, uh, possible to push. And this is where we have to make sure that it is not possible to push very far. Mm. Yeah. So what, what they come up with, I mean, it depends on whether Turnbull is of a mind to take on another fight in the lead-up to an election and whether he thinks that fight would be um, to his favour or against. Um, I You know, I think the the logic of the inquiry will play second fiddle to the politics. I'm sure of that. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why groups like the Mormons and others are, are branch stacking and getting their, um, their guys in to positions of power is because once they're in, they can just say, you know, buggy you, and I don't care what the right decision is or what other people think. I'm just going to follow my convictions and and do what I want to do. And uh, th that's the risk that we're running here. Is if you've got people in power who've got very firm convictions about these issues, then it doesn't really matter about the merits of the argument. I mean, nobody in their right mind could really justify the chaplaincy program as it currently stands where you're insisting on a on a 
on a religious person to do a role which you are also insisting cannot involve proselytising. So when it comes to sort of just logical merit, um, once they're in power, they all just sort of say, oh, you know, who cares about that? This is my conviction. And and the best arguments can just be tossed away is is the risk that we're running here, isn't it? Sure. But Mm. they... But it's within a relatively narrow band. Hmm. I mean, you know, if they go too far, I think uh, Australians' good sense will be offended and people will rise up and say no. Right. But, but there's enough already, Meredith, for people to rise up and be offended about, but nobody seems to be. Like, Well, the, the... well you and I might agree <laughs> But, no, seriously, go and talk to somebody who's not involved in this area. Yeah, yeah. and they won't know the first thing about it. They don't know anything about it and they don't care. Yes. Because it doesn't affect them personally. Yes, and so that's why I'm saying they could almost come out with something and most people just won't care. Like they could come out with with something and and increase the ability for religious organisations to to discriminate in their fi- in their hiring and firing and people won't care because they don't care now with the but, current situation. I think they do care. I think they do, I think people do care that say an LGBTI person or an unmarried mother can be summarily dismissed do, do from just school. The, the Queensland care about that. Yeah. The, the Queensland education minister, she didn't care when I met with her couple of years ago um, because she was my local member and we were discussing various issues and I said so are you going to move anywhere when it comes to the ability of private religious schools to you know discriminate in their hiring and firing and she said I don't care because that just means more good teachers are available for me to hire in my public system shrugged her shoulders and that was it and she was the education minister for Queensland (laughs) Right, well, you've got a problem there. <laughs> exactly. And she was, you know, she, she was not religious and she was brought up in a, in a public high school and her mother had kept her out of scripture classes because she disagreed with it. So on the face of it, she should have been somebody right on board, but she just took the view, oh, well, it just makes my job easier for I'll have a bigger pool of people to hire from. So if I couldn't, if that person couldn't, this is a Labor education minister. Couldn't Trevor? Can I say there are ways and ways of um, presenting these issues to ministers? You know, you've got to find somebody who is very appealing, who's being discriminated against, that the media are going to love. Yep. Then it becomes a political issue, and under those circumstances, your minister might say oh, my goodness, uh, this is affecting potential voters, I'd better take an interest. This is where your test case will be useful because the person you've got for that is uh, clearly has suffered some discrimination and is just an ordinary Joe in that sense that people could identify with. So even ignoring the legal yeah. possible victory, it sort of highlights how unfair it is. So that's the other benefit of running the test case, I guess, is even if you were to lose in the court, it might motivate a politician to change some laws, maybe. Or maybe not. <laughs> I think I'd rather win in the court <laughs> yeah. rely on the politician. Yeah, I think so as well. So, yeah. Um, lobbying. So... Um, in the very early days of this podcast, I had uh, talked about lobbying and there was a book called Democracy for Realists and I spoke to Brian Morris and 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 soon afterwards he started the National Secular Lobby. I like to think I was just a little spur there to get him going. <laughs> and, um, and it seemed to me initially that his ambassadors were getting on to radio programs and producing articles for newspapers but weren't actually lobbying and, you know, not actually in the corridors of Parliament House meeting with politicians privately trying to change their minds. And I was going to complain actually to you in this in this talk about how the National Secular Lobby isn't really lobbying, but I noticed there was just an email only in the last week where... Um, 
uh, from Brian, he says, and I'll quote here, we are ramping up our active secular lobbying in Canberra. We are currently negotiating with high-profile donors to provide sufficient funds necessary for NSL to commence our primary strategy to have an ambassador and small support team to directly lobby MPs at Parliament House on specific secular issues. I reckon that's a really key thing myself, is to be in the ear of these people, um, giving an alternative voice to the one that they're probably hearing a lot from other elements. Any thoughts on that, Meredith? When, when I used to work for um, Ford Australia, I worked in what was called the Government Affairs area. And I used to go and see state and federal ministers and their staff. And at that time, it was relatively easy to get in to see a minister. I think it probably is less easy now. And also, if you're representing a large and at that time important company like Ford, that sort of opened a few doors. but look, if you, if, um, lobbying can be uh, it, obviously it's part of the whole set of strategies that and actions that we need to take. And, and hats off to uh, to Brian for putting in the time and effort to um, get this off the ground and convincing people to uh, to do the work. I'm very happy um, to hear that it's um, going ahead and if you've got some uh, donors to support it, even that's even better. Because, you know, just at a fund- fundamental level, you've got to pay for um, plane fare to and from Canberra and hotel rooms and so on. That all adds up. Yes, incredibly exp- expensive exercise. So money is the is the one of the keys to that. Um, the Skype call started off really well, Meredith, but in the last few minutes, it started to deteriorate. So, and I reckon we're at about the hour stage, which um, you normally stop listening at. So we'll probably call it a day on this podcast <laughs> for the moment, and I'd love to have you back on at another time if you're up for it. Absolutely, yeah. Look, it's been a delight and and thank you for the invitation and uh, look forward to catching up and maybe with your um, fellow podcasters uh, at some stage in the future too. Okay, very good, Meredith. Um, Just stay on the line. The other thing, of course, dear listener, is Meredith produces a, a daily newsletter, RSA Daily, so if you hop onto the website for The Rationalists, you'll see how to subscribe to that and gives a good um, little list of what's happened in the previous 24 hours with links to different articles and again not always necessarily to do with religion um, all sorts of sort of uh, sciencey things in there as well and it's a good little newsletter to keep you up to date of more meaty topics and things happening around the world so make sure you do that as well. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. It's the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Hop onto iTunes or hop onto our website. Have a look at what we normally do. It's normally sort of a panel of us where we discuss various issues, not always to do with religion or secularism. We often talk about freedom of speech issues, crazy things that Donald Trump's doing, um, just uh, things of interest that are happening, uh, cultural, um, identity politics, all that sort of stuff. So... If that might interest you, check out our our website and podcast and subscribe. So until next time, thanks very much. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and 
subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.